Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, everyone. This is Johnny Tan, author of From My Mama's Kitchen, Food for the Soul, Recipes for Living. Welcome to From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio Show. My guest for this morning is Mike Bernstein. He is a certified tax expert, founder and CEO of Bernstein Financial Services, a consulting firm that has catered to construction clients and small businesses for over 30 years. Mike has offices in Los Angeles and San Diego, California, providing services for over 50 companies. He is also the host of Your Working Out Accountant on YouTube. Mike's book, The Ultimate Guide to Planning Your Personal Finances, shares the big six strategies everyone needs to put together to retake control of their finances. Mike and I will be having a conversation about his his remarkable life's journey, his passion for helping people master their financial planning, and how we can prepare ourselves financially in today's new normal. Good morning, Mike. Happy 2021, and welcome to From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio to you. Good morning. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Fantastic. It is a wonderful book that you have. It's a pleasure to have you on the air first. And the, I have to tell you, the ultimate guide to planning your financial finances extremely is extremely insightful, engaging, and most importantly, easy read. <laughs> and uh, thank you for taking the time to compose an excellent book. Congratulations on this release. Thank you. Let us start by getting to know you a little bit better. Please give us a quick walkthrough of your life from childhood to the present moment. Okay, great. I, I grew up in the L.A. area, was born in the L.A. area. And I, the youngest of four boys, my family, an intact family, very lucky, very happy family life. Uh, as I grew up, an interesting factor was that I was diagnosed with dyslexia. So I, had, I was a slow reader. Was behind in reading all the time, and they discovered this uh, interesting way. I was turning on a light switch, and back then there was a little switch on off. And I said, "My brother, why is it say no?" He says, uh, "You better go talk to dad." And and so it was on. So I was reading it backwards. But that was the beginning journey of of overcoming some obstacles that helped me succeed. And mm-hmm. so uh, even though I had trouble with reading, uh, and and by the way. Uh, the doctor had said, this kid is probably not going to go to college, they told my parents. Luckily, mm-hmm. my parents were very uh, good at raising kids, and they didn't tell me. So I did <laughs> go to college and got a master's. I never knew nothing was really that wrong. I just got it fixed and worked hard and, and did it. But it never affected numbers for me. And that's the key here. So I ended up uh, going to UC Santa Barbara for an engineering degree with some mm-hmm. accounting minor. And I went to UC Irvine uh, and got an MBA. And then later on, joined my father in the uh, tax business and, and mm-hmm. buying it out from him in 1988. And I've been doing this for 33 years. Fantastic. Did you have some other significant influences when you were growing up? Well, having three older brothers right there is a big <laughs> influence because they were all very different uh, in, mm-hmm. in the way they approached uh, their goals and their life. And I learned from them. And unfortunately, they had to learn some hard knocks, which I was very fortunate to be benefited of, of learning from them. And my father, who was in World War II, had a lot of uh, interesting stories and, and yeah. life experience. He was a very, very hard worker. So uh, those were my main influences, yes. Very, very interesting. So when did you realize you like numbers? And especially with the challenge of, you know, being dyslexia, I get, you know, from that same point of view. Yes, yeah, so very early, like first grade, kindergarten, because I was good at them right away. And I guess mm-hmm. we tend to like things we're good at. So uh-huh. I remember in second grade, distinctly racing my friends to finish the worksheet of, you know, 30 math problems on a piece of paper, the addition or subtraction. And, and I got very few wrong, even though I had trouble mixing up letters. So mm-hmm. very early, I loved math puzzles and things like that. I give you an example. In sixth grade, I was in after school math class, and we played uh, bingo, math bingo, but in yeah. a different base, like base six. Already mm-hmm. a brain teaser for people out there listening. Right. To so really like numbers. Enjoy. Wow. Them. 
That's fascinating. That's very, very interesting. And you mentioned the fact that you actually pursue an engineering degree and so forth. So why did you decide to pursue a career as a, as a tax expert? Well, I guess because my father was in the tax mm-hmm. business, maybe I was shying away from that a little bit, but I helped him <laughs> do, I, I worked for him and made money at 14 and 15 years old, learning accounting mm-hmm. from him manually. So I learned very early, but I really enjoyed drafting and drawing. So I took six years of drafting in junior high and high school, and that was a natural entrance to engineering in college. Yeah. And engineering yeah. is pl- plenty of numbers. Uh, it turns to letters later on in engineering because you, you get past the numbers. Uh, but uh, it certainly taught me discipline and made took calculus classes to the extent where there's no math problem I can't solve in the tax business. So, but then <laughs> I, I got out into industry for a year or two and really didn't care for the actual work. Yeah. Said, wow, four years of engineering really don't care for the work. What should I do now? And then I kind of turned to and my father's been begging me to come into the business with him and buy it from him eventually. And I when it's tried it and turned out I loved it. I don't know why I love that versus engineering. They are a little different, yeah. but not a lot different. Yeah. Yeah. That's very, very I interesting. Been, I haven't had a board day since. Oh, wow. That's fascinating. So let's talk about this. I know uh, in your personal life, you felt it. Uh, active athletically and so forth and very uh, I guess you know and, and I was gonna, I'm going to answer this it's pretty cool do you consider yourself structurally organized or organically organized well if organically means that it kind of happens naturally I would say organically right. only because right. I feel uncomfortable when I'm not organized so <laughs> yeah so that's maybe a little bit of an OCD there uh, that I really, when I, I feel not or, when I'm not organized, I don't feel I can get things done efficiently. Mm-hmm. I get a little ang- anxiety probably, so it forces me to do that. So I think it's more organically for me, rather than structurally organized. From from the standpoint, like you know, there's no gray area. Yeah, everything has to be in the framework and, and, and so forth. Because very oh, uh, a matter of fact kind of no, thing. No, <laughs> actually, okay, very good. Okay, I, if that's what your question is, second part, no, I'm very flexible. So uh-huh. I think in the tax business, you view the person as, well, you know, one plus one is two. You got to add up the numbers. You got to put them in the slots. Right. But there's a lot of interpretation in tax law and even more for clients. So you got one client in front of you that yeah. is very flexible on being – not risk, but being aggressive on their return and they want to take every last deduction they can. There'll be another mm-hmm. client right next to them, the next person who doesn't ever want to get a letter from the IRS. It scares them to death and they don't want mm-hmm. to take even, even the deductions they're allowed to take, they don't want to take them all. So yeah. I like yeah. being flexible and going with the client wants, you know, tell them the choices. And I understand that we all come from a different viewpoint. Right. Right. So true. Very, very interesting. So what's this thing about being a triathlete? I had asthma when I was little. And Uh rather than the doctor saying, here, sit down in this corner and be quiet when you have asthma and don't worry, he, which was fantastic for me, he told my parents, get him into sports where he's running Mm -hmm. around and a wind instrument like a trumpet. And so they Mm -hmm. did. So at age six, they took me to a park in here in L.A. And we did running races on the weekend, 100-yard dash, 200-yard dash, mm-hmm. long jump, mm-hmm. high jump. For kids, you win a blue ribbon, and it was fantastic. Well, I got to liking running, and I said, I want to run further. They wouldn't let me run my first mile until I was eight years old because there were rules back then. Now oh. kids run marathons. But anyways, I loved it, and I kept running longer and longer. And I competed when I was young uh, with uh, AAU, Amateur Athletic mm-hmm. Union, and uh association and so that got me into long distance running and I never basically never stopped now they didn't have triathlons back then they didn't have Mm -hmm. other types of crossfit so when I was about mid-30s late 30s I decided you know what I want to do something other than running because I'd done marathons and half marathons and all sorts of road races and Mm -hmm. I and did well in high school so I said okay I'm gonna learn something else but I didn't know how to swim and mm-hmm. in the book, if you read the preface, you'll see my journey to learning how to do an Ironman, which is a swim, bike, run. I could mm-hmm. run, I could get on a bike, but I didn't know how to swim properly. So I took lessons and learned that. And it gave me a lot of power to understand planning for a large event because the Ironman takes around 12, 13 hours to right. complete. So there's a training regimen. You get knocked off your training. You have to get back on. You have to delay. Uh, you have to uh, plan right. You have to make goals, and all of this is the same as you need to do for the book. 
the items in the book. <laughs> There's no difference in a lot of things in life. You can put them right across. How did you use your motivational mindset to contribute to your professional life? I was looking at what makes me tick, and I think a lot of it is I really like achieving goals, regardless of mm-hmm. what category. So I'm mm-hmm. concentrating on sporting goals. I have bibs, running bibs all over my office and mm-hmm. pictures of triathlons and things like that. And I like achieving that journey and getting to the end, but it's not just getting to the goal. It's getting to milestones along the way. Because I know when you do those long goals, a 100-mile run or a, an Ironman, you have to think about along the way. You can't take it in all one bite. And, and that's what helps me in other areas is, okay, I can't do all the big six that we're going to talk about in a few minutes yeah. all at once. I need to take them bite-sized. I need to do what's important now and move through it slowly. Otherwise, I'll end up not doing it at all. That's true. Very, very true. So why did you decide to write The Ultimate Guide to Planning Your Personal Finances? Early in my career as a tax expert, mm-hmm. I realized that tax expert was only one part of people's financial life. So mm-hmm. I had written a list of, of, of areas that my clients, I was only 30 at the time, right? So I was kind of mm-hmm. learning myself. Uh, of course, my father had showed me a lot about it. And, and I, I said, to a young couple, well, I think you need more insurance for your child. And I realized the insurance, the estate planning, the retirement planning, all the pieces. So I made up a little sheet and each person mm-hmm. that came in said, have you handled these items in your life? Now they aren't the tax return. So a person comes in a tax return, they're wondering, okay, why are you telling me about these items? Uh, because no one else will. I mean, they mm-hmm. might, but it'll be lucky. We don't want this to be lucky. We want this to happen in a structured way in a planned way, in a safe way, to do two things in your life, and that is to protect your family and to secure your financial future. Almost everything comes under that heading, all the big six, all the items I work towards with clients. The mm-hmm. problem is most tax clients don't get this from their tax preparer. There's, right. there's a couple reasons. One, the preparer doesn't want to spend the time on that during their tax appointment and tax season is too busy, and that's when they mainly see the client. The second item is it doesn't produce as much revenue as they would like. Mm-hmm. You know, I, send, I say you need life insurance. You go to a life insurance person and buy it. Even though I might have a life license, you go there and buy it. Uh, you need an estate plan. You go to an attorney. So I tell you what to do on getting to the attorney. Did I earn any fees there? No, I didn't earn any fees. But I had to take time out of my day and my tax appointment to plan and do that. And that's a lot of emotional, psychological energy because they're very difficult subjects to talk to clients about. But to me, it became a passion and even – as important as the tax return. So I've been doing this for 33 years, trying to get clients to address all these areas. I said, why shouldn't the general public do this also? Now, there are lots of books out there that talk about all these issues. Right. After talking to clients over 33 years, it's so (laughs) hard for people to address these issues. There's all sorts of hurdles in their life. It might be that they don't think they have enough money to plan, or they don't want to address their negative cash flow, or they're not doing well right now or their partner spends too much, but they don't, so they don't want to talk about cash flow, or they don't want right. to talk about death, or, you know, mm-hmm. incapacity, all those things. So I try and demystify them in the book and address them one by one in a very consumable fashion. Well, you did an excellent job because the book, it is an easy read, and not only that, it's very engaging from a standpoint of, you know, a lot of times when you pick up a book about finances and especially planning, oh, my God, <laughs> do I really want to read this? And it sort of a, has a serious tone to it, but yours has more of an engaging, hey, this is real life, real situation. Let's have a kitchen table conversation about it because we have to somehow talk about this sometime, either now or the future. And the good news is we can talk about it right now, sort of, you know, in a way, extremely stress-free. As stress-free as possible. Because mm-hmm. talking about death and incapacity and talking about, you know, writing a forecast for your cash flow is mm-hmm. going to be a little stressful no matter what for everybody. So <laughs> the key is how do you address it? Part of it is to surround yourself with positive influencers, positive professionals. You don't want a financial advisor telling you how bad you've done on your plan. You want, to, you want them to surround yourself and say, okay, this is what you've done so far. Let's see how we can even do better and achieve your retirement goals. Right. right. And, right. and, and not put you down for the things you haven't done, but 
uh, uh, congratulate for the for the things you have done. And some of the so times, congratulation is addressing the thing in the first place, just right. getting to the table, right? So true, and I agree because in reading your book and based on what we've talked so far, you take the approach of you know in life everybody sets out to do things right, but in the course of trying to do things right, they may not do the right thing. And our goal is to give them the benefit of doubt and help and usher them in the right way to meet their goals in life. We will likely fail in most of the big six at some point <laughs> along the way. That doesn't mean we failed completely. It's just we got off right. track. Right. So in so, the case of uh, cash flow planning, maybe it got out of hand when you got kids and you got yeah. uh, too many expenses. So you got to revisit it on a yearly right. basis every two years. So you're exactly right that we, it's just like training for the triathlon. You know, mm-hmm. I'm going to have a sore foot and be messed up for a couple of weeks and then get back on track and re- redo the goals again. Very interesting. In looking back from a retrospection standpoint of view, how has your work in the construction business and perhaps, you know, the, uh, from, from, from that standpoint of view helps you contribute to the success of engaging and knowing exactly how that structure works in the financial structure, because it's all about creativity as well. It is. And it's uh, being, keeping your mind open to the possibilities and not just uh, a narrow path as to what you already know and what you only feel comfortable with. So mm-hmm. in the construction area, of course, where I specialize is uh, developers who might buy land, um, syndicate, which means get investors, then mm-hmm. they entitle that land, which means get all the permits and the engineering, and then they will start construction, get a construction loan from a bank and move through. And that's, that could be a one to three year process to put raise that, 40-unit apartment complex, mm-hmm. and uh, there's many ways to fund it. You can get all cash from investors. That's one funding mechanism. Another is that you actually go to a, a bank and get a construction loan. Another is that you have privately financed. So there's lots of different ways to finance your mm-hmm. businesses, and, and that's just that project. Overall, businesses do all sorts of financing for their own business. So we have the developer who may have several projects, and they want to invest in them or they want to develop their business. So they need a separate loan or separate investment. And then we have, of course, what my book talks about is restructuring personal debt on the personal Mm -hmm. side. So what the book is really trying to get at is not so much the construction uh, project or their business. This book is getting at the owner and what they need to do and often neglect to do that for themselves along the way. They, they, they're so concentrated on their construction business, they forget they need the right insurances personally or to create a retirement plan, a personal cash flow plan, uh, you know, all those areas mm-hmm. that are, mm-hmm. get a trust done. So true. By the way, you're listening to From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio, our podcast, available on iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Teachers Radio, Blueberry Podcasting, TuneIn Radio, MixCloud, Podchaser, LinkedIn, Listen Notes, and Hop Hopper. I'm Johnny Tan, your host, and my guest for this morning is Mike Bernstein. He is a certified tax expert, founder and CEO of Bernstein Financial Services, a consultancy firm that has catered to construction clients and small businesses for over 30 years. Mike has offices in Los Angeles and San Diego, California, providing services for over 50 companies. He is also the host of Your Working Out Accountant on YouTube. Mike's book, The Ultimate Guide to Planning Your Personal Finances, shares the big six strategies everyone needs to put together to retake control of their finances. We're having a conversation about his remarkable life's journey, his passion for helping people master their financial planning, and how we can prepare ourselves financially in today's new normal. Mike, let's talk about the big six stable personal finance. What are they? Oh, uh, thank you, uh, Johnny. Before we get to that, I just want to let know people can get this, uh, see me, our, our firm, and get the book through SoCal.BernsteinFinancial.com, which is our website. And it'll, you can click on book, and it'll take you to the book, or you can go directly to Amazon to get the book. And the book is around 70, 80 pages long, very consumable, about 10 to 15 pages per chapter. Okay. Uh, so what is the big six? The big six are cash flow planning, insurance planning, retirement planning, college planning, 
estate planning, and tax planning. So I believe these encompass almost everything you're going to need to have a good financial life. Okay. Shall and I delve into any of them specifically, Johnny? Or uh, why like is about? why is knowing our cash flow and net worth an essential first step in our financial journey? Well, great question. It is the first chapter, and it's not a coincidence that it is because this is what most people need first. It's very difficult to save retirement if you're negative cash flow, if you don't really have a handle on your debt and things like that. So the, the first chapter lays out what, how you should lay out a cash flow plan. Oh, this is such a difficult thing for people, Johnny. They don't want to address it for several reasons. One, they don't want to stop spending what they're spending. Okay, I'm not going to be able to get my coffee mm-hmm. every morning or I'm not going to be able to. You're going to take away my fun, Mike. No, I have lots of fun. I like fun. I want everybody to have fun. We just got to balance it to make sure we can have fun when we retire also, right? So we want to look to the future. So in my cash flow chapter, I tell you how to lay it out very simply. And I give you an Excel spreadsheet sample in there. If you don't use Excel, you can do it manually. You can write it down. I I tell you to put down, for example, your net paycheck and your spouse's net paycheck, if there is one, any other income coming in. And then down below, here's the key. List down all your expenses, which people usually miss many things, and make everything monthly. Now, what do I mean by that? Everything monthly. So if you pay property tax on a home twice a year or once a year, I think Texas you pay once a year. I think in California twice a year. Divide by 12 and put it in monthly. But, Mike, I don't pay it monthly. I pay it once a year. I understand. Put it in monthly. So if it's $2,400 a year, put in 200 It's 48 put in 400 Same with other things. Estimate your repairs in your car. Divide by 12 Put it in monthly. Everything, vacations. How much do you just think you're going to spend on vacations this year? 1000 3000 5000 whatever it is. Divide by 12 Everything's divided by 12 then you get to what a real cash flow positive or negative is. But how do I go pay those, Mike? Well, what you do is you have different accounts and you pay into that account. So I have a, if, if it's not impounded, your property tax in your mortgage, you have a tax account, property tax account, and you pay $300 into that property tax every single month. And when the property tax is due, you move it over to checking and pay it. And you can do this process with everything. And then you really know what you're spending because uh, when people make up a cash flow sheet, they do two things wrong. The one, mm-hmm. they don't do this monthly idea. And two, they lie to themselves about it. They, they, they make <laughs> it what they want it to be rather than what it really is. So we need to take yeah. off the blinders, just make it what it is. I don't care whether it's negative or positive. It's numbers. Put them down. Make sure we know where we're starting from. Then you can start to make changes that will benefit your life if necessary from it. And that will also tell you, what disposable money there is for saving for college, for kids, for the retirement planning, for insurance planning to, to pay for a living, revocable living trust and, and take care of those things for the future. I think the biggest challenge is I'm sure. Uh, yeah. I, you know, I think the biggest challenge that everybody has is the fact that it's the fear factor when you put it down and you start looking at it and saying, OMG, I'm like totally, in the hole here. How am I going to get, you know, myself out of it? I'm in denial, basically. I'm living in denial. Right. So I tell them to put that second, okay? Mm -hmm. Think of it as a math problem or a project you're doing for a friend. Mm -hmm. Get the numbers down there. Don't worry about the result yet because you can't address the result until you see it. So, yes, if I put it down, I'm negative. And now Mike Bernstein says, but there are ways out. There are always ways out. You might not love them. And it doesn't mean you have to not have any fun, but maybe we can improve it. Maybe we can restructure the debt in your life. Maybe we can Mm -hmm. change things around the way you spend, not necessarily spending, but the way you do it so you can recognize and control a little bit better. I'll give you Mm -hmm. some examples. And this is for, there's a large swath of the community that struggles on a monthly basis, right? So this is for you. We're not talking about the person that has $5,000 extra per month left over every single month. I mean, they still need to do this to put away enough to do that. You should not squander money. But so many people just have trouble that you're talking about. So uh, you put it down as it is, and we say, okay, there's 
not going to be enough money to pay all the bills. Well, you knew that because your credit card debt was going up. You knew that was happening. There's two ways to fix this, right? Either you're going to have to lower the expenses or you're going to have to raise the income or a little bit of both. So yeah. we look at ways to raise income. Maybe it needs a job change. Maybe you need to go get, maybe you need to have more debt before you can do better. Maybe you need to go back to yeah. school a little bit to improve that and then get a better job. And it's a long-term plan. It's not a one-year plan. It's a five-year plan. And then mm-hmm. we renew it. So mm-hmm. there are always answers. There are always answers. And there are sometimes it's the little things we don't even realize that we could fix. And we would fix if we knew. So, for instance, let's say if you knew you were spending $700 a month on lunches and, and going out or $800 a month on going out for the family. If you knew that, you say, well, no, no, that's too much. I shouldn't be spending that much. Um, I think I could limit that in half for $400. let us just choose right. how we're going to go out once a week. It be $100 each time or whatever it is, whatever you decide, mm-hmm. and limit it and see how that works or two-thirds right. of it. And you find out that you allocate the money, you allocate the times, and all of a sudden it works. So I call it the envelope system. That means when you go to the grocery store, you just don't go every two days, every three days and swipe the card. Mm-hmm. You go once a week if you can for the major shopping job. You, you take cash out of the bank every month, every week. For the groceries, it might be 200, 300, 400, depending on how big your family is. And you go there and you spend cash. And then you put the leftover in the envelope, take it out next month, next week. Sooner or later, you will know exactly what you spend on groceries every month to the very close, within, you know, 10, 20, 30 dollars. Right. This is a way to understand your budget. I know it's not fun. I know it's not a, it could be a game. You can make it fun. But you're going to like the result because you're going to feel better about it. That's the right. key. You need to get one, you need to get some little uh, successes along Mm -hmm. the way so you can move forward, right? When you learn to Mm -hmm. snowboard, you don't snowboard down the hill, which I love to snowboard. The first day, (laughs) I took a lesson. I felt jittery. I fell many times. And then, you know, you just move slowly and carefully. So true. Well, what you did was in the book in chapter one, you're basically telling everyone, well, you know, uh, for that matter, in all the chapters, the six big uh, strategies that you have, it's like, okay, it's time to establish a baseline. That's the most important thing, knowing where you're at. And from there, uh, like you talk about the grocery, for example, you are mindful enough not to be get caught up with impulse buying, because that's what all retail outlets or, you know, position things in a situation where it is impulse buying versus purposeful buying, uh, so to speak. So it's very, very interesting the way you approach it. So I really like that uh, from that perspective. How can individuals and entrepreneurs quickly improve their cash flow? The very first step is to actually put it down on paper because you can't improve it unless Mm -hmm. it's on paper. And that's for businesses too. I do Mm -hmm. a, uh, a forecast for the next year by month and then mm-hmm. two more years, just a year at a time for my business. I do that every single year. Am I right? Sometimes, sometimes I'm off the year changes, mm-hmm. but I have a goal in mind. I have a pathway. If we don't have a path, we're going to meander in life. So mm-hmm. if we don't set these goals, we're going to meander. We're not going to get those things done that we need to get done. Yes. We want to have the fun, but let's get the items we need to get done. So uh, we have to uh, set those goals, put those numbers down, and then prove the cash flow. That usually involves, uh, for instance, uh, I get the question, well, should I refinance my house and pay off all my credit cards? There's an example. That may definitely improve your cash flow. But guess what? That usually happens in that case. They charge up their cards again. Okay? Mm -hmm. So there has to be a plan on paper that works that you won't need to get back into debt again because you got into the debt because your negative cash flow or the spending habits. If that doesn't change, you're going to be right back where you were. And all you did is took the credit card, spread it over 30 years and got new ones. <laughs> right. So right. there are definite ways to improve it, but if it doesn't accompany some sort of basic plan, it's going to fail. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So true. And businesses, same for businesses, they can get credit lines and restructure and, uh, they might they might also for cash flow for businesses look at their uh, money owed to them and have a different way of charging and collecting from their clients so that it improves their cash flow and they're not always strung out. So there's lots of ways on the personal and the business side to mm-hmm. improve cash flow. 
Very, very interesting. Well, that's I'm so glad you addressed that because it is important sometimes because a lot of times you it's easy to have someone to tell you, oh, just restructure your debt. But then there's good restructuring and bad restructuring because if you're restructuring and then you're just moving that to create new debts, then you're in trouble. <laughs> right. So I have, and I have recommended sometimes refi and take up, pay off credit cards in some cases, but that's after we finish the cash flow analysis. And I found after we do that, you're going to be positive. Right. We're not going, you're going to be positive and you're not going to go charge on credit cards anymore. Or if you do, it's going to be paid off every month just to get the miles or whatever you're doing for that. Is a right. And right. I say, you got to stick to that. So let's go, let's look at three months. Will you be able to do that or six months? And, you know, if you're conscious of it, you can do it. Uh, so there are so times true. that it really does help to do that. Right. So true. Definitely. What type of insurance planning should we incorporate in our financial planning? Well, there are, there are several uh, that are important in our life, and they're important at different times in our life. Right? So most people think of life insurance when they think of insurance or health insurance. Right? It's, mm-hmm. and, and, and we know in the United States too many people don't have health insurance because of the expense and access. So, of course, my first goal is for, to help people figure out a way to have health insurance because uh, we need to be healthy and be able to correct uh, any health problems. But, but my book really gets into more life insurance and other types of insurance like long-term care, overhead disability, umbrella insurance. So if I had to choose one of those that we always want to address immediately, and that's life insurance. Mm-hmm. And I say that, I give this example, a young couple will come to my office making plenty of money, doing well, and they say, uh, I don't, I, you know, how much life insurance we need. I, I, it's a bad investment I've heard. I should just put away. I'm putting away a couple thousand a month or a thousand a month or five, whatever I'm putting away, I'm putting away. I'm going to earn for retirement. I don't want to spend that money on insurance. I said, okay, the young family's in front of me. I talked to him. I talked to her. I tell him you can't talk because unfortunately, I hate to say it, but you just died. Okay. And I'm sorry to tell you that, but so you can't talk. Not allowed to talk. I'm going to talk to your spouse. So now your spouse is looking at me. This is very uncomfortable, not for me because I'm used to doing this, but they, I make them feel at ease and say, okay, how are you going to live without his income? He wants to talk, but he's not going to talk. And I say, okay, how much insurance do we have? Oh, we have 200000 insurance, and he makes 100000 a year. Well, that's going to last two years. Then what are we going to mm-hmm. do, right? Or maybe there's two kids at home. That's not going to last, right? How much insurance do we need? And I make it very practical in the book. Okay, if you inv- how much do you need to put in an investment at let's say five percent earnings to replace that hundred thousand? And two million dollars times five percent is a hundred thousand dollars. That means if he died in those two million dollars of term life insurance, the family can get a hundred thousand dollars infinity forever at five percent. That's mm-hmm. the type of planning, simple planning that can be done with life insurance to get to the right numbers. And believe it or not term insurance is not that expensive. It seems like a huge amount of money for a lot of people, $2 million. But believe right. me, if a, a death happens, it's really important. Now, that's not the right number for everybody. It might be five, right. it might be a million, it might be three million. But the point is, and then the next thing is sometimes it is a little bit too expensive. Let's say $2 million will cost them uh, $300 a month or $200 a month, and that's too much. Okay, let's get seven fifty. Let's get 500000 and get another policy on top of that later on when we can afford it. And we tier them. And we add them up till we get to the goal we want to need it, we want to be at. Because putting $1,000 a month away, if I die in two months, $2,000. And that's it. Right. Right. So there's an example so, of life insurance. And life insurance is used for all sorts of things. It can be used for estate planning. It's used for their second-to-die policy. That means that it, it only pays off when the second parent dies and, and pays to the children. There's all sorts of different types of life insurance planning that can be used to solve all sorts of uh, goals. Mm-hmm. And, and then, of course, there's long-term care, which uh, many people don't have, and you don't have to worry about this until you're older, but is very important. Uh, so, and then there's other types of insurance that we address in, in the book, and we talk about when you might need them. And do I tell you which insurance to buy? Do I tell you exactly which term and permanent, what company? No. I don't. That's not what this book is about. This is to say, these are the things you need to do in life. I kind of direct you and guide you. Now you go to your professionals and get it done. There are professionals out there that can guide you. you ever, most people have a tax preparer or some professional in their life. You ask them, they'll point you to another professional to get that done to an insurance agent. So true. That's good. 
Which is better as far as college planning for our children, the 529 plan or the UGMA plan? Uh, good question. The 529 plan, uh, what it does is you're putting in like a deferral account. So if I put in, you can put large amounts in a 529 plan, sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars, but all the earnings are not taxable if you then use that money for tuition when the child goes to um, college. And sometimes portions can be used for a private school, high school. Uh, and that's what a 529 plan basically is. Some states allow a deduction for the state tax on the way in, very small. But mainly it's a savings plan where you're not going to be taxed on the earnings along the way, uh, like a little bit like a Roth IRA. Uh, mm-hmm. The UGMA plan, Uniform Gift to Minors Act, also called, U- uh, there's other names for it. Uh, but in any case, you're, it, that would be like you open a bank account for your child in your child's name, child's social security number, but the parent's the guardian. So I did this for my kids. This was the choice I made. So when they mm-hmm. were young, I opened accounts for them, maybe when they're nine or eight or seven, and started putting money in on a monthly basis. And what the difference is there is it's not a deferred account. It would not take, if it earns interest, it's taxable to the child. And if it invests invest in a brokerage account, the dividends and the capital gains are taxable to the child. But the child can earn almost 1000 to $2,000 every single year and pay no tax on it. So there's a large exclusion. So until you have thirty, forty, fifty, a hundred thousand dollars in there, it's not even going to produce a tax. That way, it's already been taken care of. Now it doesn't need to be used for college, in order to be, order to be not be taxable because it's already been taxed along the way, and there's been very little or no tax paid. So it's a little more flexible because the 529 plan has to be used on the college. This UGMA could be used for to buy them a car when they're older, if that's what you want to do. Or in my case, I used it for their college education. The drawback of the UGMA account is that at a certain age, 18, 21, 24, depending on the type of investment you have, it's their money. It's the child's money because it's their account. So when they're teenagers, you have to start thinking about whether they can handle this. They are going to go to college because you're allowed to use that money for their health, education, maintenance, and support all their living and since they're living at your house, you can take a portion out to use for groceries and for, for the house payment and all those things because they're living there. So you can use it up a little bit along the way and take it out if you feel they're not going to be responsible with the money. But a lot of children don't even understand it's for them for college, even for them, for them to take out. And it's time to go to college. So we take the money out, use it for college. Mm-hmm. So, But what I want to back up for a moment, Johnny, mm-hmm. is to say sure. that how you invest the money – to me, is almost irrelevant because what I find is people don't put it in in the first place. If I don't put the $200 a month in for my child starting at five or six or three or four, it's not going to add up. Nothing's going to happen. I have people coming to when their, kids are six, their child is 16 years old, and, and I see no college account. They're new to me. And I say, let's start putting the money for college. Yeah, but it's only two years away. Yeah, but we'll have something. It's better to put $400 a month now for the next two years and have something to start with. I don't know if they're going to go to junior college, if they're going to go to a, uh, a state school, or they're going to go to private school, but some help would be good. So I try and start them very early when the child is born, a little bit after, with a small account, 50 or 100 a month, and build that up and make it a bigger contribution every, every month in the later years as your income goes up and you have these accounts that help you. And then this is what we use to, uh, to the vehicle to save for college, then you take that money, you want to do an UGMA account, you want to do a 529 plan, you want to do an education IRA, all those are fine. I love them all. Doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Split them between it. I care that the money goes in there in the first place. That's good. Very, very good. Coming to retirement, is it ever too late to start planning for retirement? I suppose the day you retire is the day it's too late. And you can tell from my thinking, right? When, you're, when the child's 16, yeah. it's still not too late for college, right? So yeah. I say as long as you haven't retired yet, it's a great time. So I, I get this when I get new clients, right? New clients will yeah. come in, and, and they'll be 50 or 55 years old, and right. they'll, they'll have very little or no retirement, maybe self-employed. They haven't been paying mm-hmm. attention to that or just couldn't save whatever it was. And they say, well, I don't have the money to do it, and I, just, I guess I'll live on Social Security. I say, well, I think you're giving up too easily. You should do something. If you can build up twenty or fifty or a hundred thousand over the next 
five years or 10 years, whatever it is, um, that will help. And that will give you some choices and it will give you some ideas. And believe me, once you get in the, in the mode of doing it, you get in the habit of doing it, life changes. And all of a sudden you figure out ways to do more of it. So it's not mm-hmm. too late. This matter of fact, these are, these are some of the hurdles from doing anything at all. I don't make enough money, so I can't put it into retirement. I don't mm-hmm. have enough money, so I don't need to do estate planning or retirement because there's, it's, it's useless. All mm-hmm. those are hurdles because you don't want to at least face the issue, and it's always good to just hunker down, get someone who's going to be positive around you and face the issues. Right, right. So true. You're listening to From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio, our podcast uh, available on iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitches Radio, Blueberry Podcasting, TuneIn Radio, MixCloud, Podchaser, Listen Notes, and Hop Hopper. My guest is Mike Bernstein. He is a certified tax expert, founder, and CEO of Bernstein Financial Services, a consultancy firm that has catered to construction clients and small businesses for over 30 years. Mike has offices in Los Angeles and San Diego, California providing services for over 50 companies. He is also the host of Your Working Out Accountant on YouTube. Mike's book, The Ultimate Guide to Planning Your Personal The Ultimate Guide to Planning Your Personal Finances shares the big six strategies everyone needs to put together to retake control of their finances. We're having a conversation about his remarkable life's journey, his passion for helping people master their financial planning and how we can prepare ourselves financially in today's new normal. I'm your host, Johnny Tan. Mike, what can you tell us about the latest news regarding the RRS and the 2020 tax return? I've got notice recently that the IRS will not be accepting e-filing until February 12th, which is mm-hmm. uh, probably the latest it's ever been. People are used to already be e-filing their returns and getting their refunds by now or very close to now. But because the second CARES Act impacted the tax code, the IRS has to redo some of their software and that will delay things a little bit. And it wouldn't surprise me if it was delayed till after February 12th uh, because it's, the, the software is so complicated at the IRS level. Also, I, I wanted to mention that because of COVID, obviously that's the CARES Act is due to COVID. That's mm-hmm. what caused the delays. Let's talk about collections for a moment because there's plenty of people out there in the United States that owe the IRS money and the state money. Mm-hmm. What's happening now is very sad is that the IRS cannot just push a a red button and stop their collection process. They try to to mitigate it. What's happening is automatic letters are coming out to people. So let's say uh, I got a letter saying I owe tax for 2018 because they say I missed something on my return. And it says Mm -hmm. I owe $2,000. So I figure it out with my preparer by myself and I send the IRS a letter last March, let's say, of 2020. And now they're going to levy my account 10 months later. Wait, Mm -hmm. what about my letters? Well, the IRS has millions of pieces of paper that haven't been opened yet, letters. Wow. Because there's no one there in those departments. People Mm -hmm. are at home because of COVID. So they're not opening the letters. They can't address the letters. They can't respond back, fix the account. Yes, you didn't owe it, Mike. You don't owe 2000 Everything's cool. Instead, now I have a levy notice. I'm trying to call the IRS to try and stop it. And it's really very, very difficult I've talked to the IRS. Certain departments are able to, to delay certain areas. Others can't delay them, and you have to, to stay on the phone or prepare to stay on the phone to try and call them and put a hold on it. It's just created a, a, a whole level of havoc in the collection side of the IRS for consumers, for taxpayers. And so if you're experiencing that, know that even if you're working with a tax preparer and they're trying to mm-hmm. solve it, their hands are tied because how do they get the IRS to respond to the letter and get it fixed. Uh, can they spend hours on the phone for every client that has this problem when they usually don't? At the same time, they're trying to help everybody with their stimulus and companies with their PPP, payroll protection program, um, all that. So uh, it's really created a lot more activity for preparers and individuals uh, related to trying to handle things with the IRS. So mm-hmm. know that in advance. Interesting. Are the stimulus checks taxable? They are not. So why is my preparer asking me how much I got? Okay, because mm-hmm. this is we're doing taxes now. So a client, I, they don't come in. We're doing it by Zoom or by phone. And they, I say, how much did you get on your first stimulus? Uh, 
benefit and how much was the one that you just got now? And right. said, oh, is it taxable? I said, no, we need to put it in. Why do you need to put it in if it isn't taxable? Well, there's some people got the full amount. Some people were in a phase out range of income where they did not get the full item. Right. And some got none because they were over the income level. Okay. Mm-hmm. But it's based on the 2020 tax filing income. Well, they gave you stimulus checks way before 2020. How mm-hmm. did they do it? They used the 18 and 19 tax returns. Well, mm-hmm. if I was over the income level in 18 or 19, I didn't get the stimulus because I made too much. But if my income dropped and on my 2020 return, I'm below the income level, I tell the IRS on the filing, they tell me I didn't get it. I put a, a, an indication they didn't get it and they'll get it through their 2020 return. Now they'll get the stimulus credit as part of a refund from their 2020. So not taxable. We need it to see if we can get more now. Now mm-hmm. let's say the opposite happened, Donnie. What happens if I had a low income <laughs> and somehow I did better in 2020? Do I owe right. the money back? No. The IRS says no, or the Congress said no. You get to keep it. You don't have to pay us anything back. <laughs> that sounds good that to me. Nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was, that was really good. Can we can we write off a portion of our home expenses, such as utilities, rents, and mortgage, as a as business expenses, basically because of the shelter in place mandate? In the first year or two of the Trump uh, administration, they passed the tax uh, changes. Everyone knows mm-hmm. about those the tax law changes. They don't know the specifics, but know something got changed. One of the items is the federal miscellaneous itemized deductions was knocked out. That's where right. home office would go for a W-2 earner, not for a self-employed, mm-hmm. but for right. a W-2 earner. So there's not even a place to put it on the federal returns. So the answer is no on the wow. federal for such mm-hmm. states that file returns, not let's say in Florida, not Texas, you know, you know, state uh, income taxes for individuals, mm-hmm. but for right. those that do, uh, some states have still allowed it. Okay. Like California still, they didn't acquiesce to the federal changes. So mm-hmm. in that law and most of them, and so they do have it. But then you also still have to have enough expenses for your home office deduction, get over 2% of your income. And mm-hmm. then it goes towards your standard deduction, which you have to hurdle again. So when we're all done, either it doesn't <laughs> help on the state either, or it's very, very minor. So unfortunately, yeah. the answer is no, because we're going to get this question a lot, because a lot of people are working at home. So it's a great question, Johnny. Yeah, I would think, because obviously all expenses have gone up. Because you are working at home and you have to have high, uh, faster internet service for your company, you know, and that kind of thing. I think, <laughs> I think the government is hoping that employers will help reimburse their employees for some of that cost. Gotcha. I know as a business owner, I do, but mm-hmm. I know not mm-hmm. a lot of employers don't. So right. it causes right. more costs at the individual level. Yep. Right. So true. Uh, where can someone go to get more information about you, buy your book, engage your company's services and keep up with your latest happenings? Well, uh, my, our website is socal.bernsteinfinancial.com. Picture of our, our team members there and information about uh, business filings and, and the services we offer and the benefits those services result in for businesses. We take mostly almost all business clients. Of course, they will have an individual attached with them, but we tend Lately, not to uh, take on just an individual client, but I'm always welcoming emails or questions and answer those for people either about my book, those items in there, or about taxes. And you can also go straight to Amazon.com to get the book, The Ultimate Guide to Planning Your Personal Finances. And don't forget, when you go on the website, you can go to the book from there, and you can also go to my YouTube uh, uh, Working Out Accountant uh, YouTube account to look at and you'll get a little chuckle because Michael Bernstein has about a one to two minute videos uh, working out and giving a tax or financial tip at the same time. So until I started doing this, I didn't realize how hard it is to concentrate on giving a tax and financial tip while you're doing burpees or while you're running or while you're biking. So you'll see those there and it's it's interesting. (laughs) (laughs) I understand. How do we prepare ourselves in 2021 going forward in the new normal through your financial planning lens? The only thing that has changed is it's one of those things where I hurt my foot while training. So a lot Mm -hmm. of people have a reset. They have a 
they have to stop. I can't save as much. I can't, I got to stop my retirement program. Uh, I'm, I have unemployment now, maybe all sorts of reset items. And what people can do is it's hard to plan financially during that time because you're just surviving. Mm-hmm. You have to remember as soon as you're going to come out of that, do the plan as you come out of that. Because right now it's surviving. You might have to increase debt to make it through. Okay, that happens. That's just getting off the path a little bit and getting back on the path afterwards. So just remember that this is a period of time in your life, if you're struggling financially, that you do what you can and do what you have to. Consult professionals to help you do it. Get the benefits you can. And then as soon as it's done, reset that plan, get back on the path, and slowly move back because there's plenty of years left, hopefully, to do that. Wonderful advice. If you have the opportunity to speak to the new president that we have, our current president right now, what would you what would your advice be in terms of the tax code for the average Joe out there? Well, hey, that's a very interesting question asking to a tax preparer because uh, <laughs> obviously it affects my business and what I do on a yearly basis. Yeah. So the tax code is is very complicated, but most of the complication revolves about being fair. And let me tell you why. Mm-hmm. So let's say we want to get rid of the tax code. I hear this now and then. And let's just make a sales tax. That would be easy. We don't have to file taxes. Texas, you know, no state tax, no filing, right? Well, let's say mm-hmm. the IRS goes to we're going to make a 22% sales tax and everything. That takes away all the complication, right? But the question mm-hmm. is, is it fair? Because who pays mm-hmm. the tax? So if I make $2 million a year and I use of that to live, and buy things 300,000 a year and the rest goes to savings, mm-hmm. I'm basically paying tax on 300,000. Mm-hmm. But if I make 150,000 a year, my family does, it's all going to consumables and I'm paying tax. So what it does is it moves who is going to fund the government to pay the mm-hmm. taxes. People get confused that changing the tax code does not change the cost of the government. Mm-hmm. You still have to collect the same amount of money to pay all the government bills. Mm-hmm. So that means changing the tax code to be a sales tax. You still have to collect the same amount. So it's going to redistribute who pays for it. So right. it comes down to what's fair, who should pay the tax. And I'm not going to say what is fair because we all have our own opinion of right. who should pay the tax. Uh, and, and we can all debate that. And bite. Uh, President Biden will debate that with uh, mm-hmm. Democrats and Republicans to say, should we raise the tax on people making more than 400000 Well, probably people make less than 400000 be okay with that. People make more yeah. than 400000 aren't going to be okay with that. The question is, I have clients who make millions. I have mm-hmm. clients that don't make much at all. It's the whole gamut. And the ones right. who make millions are upset about paying tax as much as any other level, as are the other levels. So we all right. want to keep as much as we can. And then it's a, a question of how you view society and how you view government should pay. And then, uh, of course, there's the issue of do you think the government bills are the right amount of bills? Are they spending it on the right thing? And that comes into play when we're, when we're uh, deciding what to do. But mainly, I think that pre- the presence in the past and the administration, I don't know why, has mm-hmm. not gone in front of the general public to explain the process. Why do we have when, when the code was created, I think it was 1922 is when it started uh, creating the tax code. When it started, it was very simple. What was your income? Paid 2 3% or whatever it was. Right, okay. right. Then, then someone who had a rental property says, well, I collect you know, $400 in rent a month, but I have expenses of 200 And they said, okay, right. you can have a rental schedule and deduct those. Then the business mm-hmm. comes by and says, I have a business. Do I have to pay on the 10000 I got? Or can I deduct the expenses of five? Oh, you can deduct the expenses. So let's do a business schedule for you. You now take 100 years of that, 200 years of that, and all of a sudden, what do we have? The tax code. So it really meant to try and account for fairness. And then I would say probably 10 to 20% of it is that, you know, someone's doing it for their constituency. It's not helping very many people. It's, you know, tit for tat type of legislation. But probably 70, 80% of the code, adoption Mm -hmm. credits, with solar credits, they're all help to stimulate and help people buy things. So I I would, what my advice to him would be explain the deficit, explain what the difference between being in deficit spending is versus what the debt is of the country, explain how much we're bringing in every year and how much we're spending. I don't think the average person really understands it. Get in a white Mm -hmm. chart 
and start writing down some numbers for the public. They're very smart. They can figure right. it out. They can understand if you tell them, just tell them. I agree. I think what happens is that as educated as we are, we're not as educated as we are. <laughs> That's right. just plain yeah. facts. Uh, information is out there, but it's kind of a little muddy, so to speak. What is next for you? Johnny, can I, yes. may I may I talk about estate planning before we run out of oh, yes, time? Of I know the mm-hmm. audience may be interested in that. Yeah. Because I, the question I usually get from people is, why do I need to do an estate plan? I don't have any money, or I have very little, or I have a house and a little savings and a retirement. Estate planning is in two sections. One is related to money. It's not going to save you any income taxes. It might save you estate taxes if you have a large estate. But let's not talk about that. Let's talk about why else would I have it? Care. Mm -hmm. Care is very important. So my wife and I and two kids, unless they're minor children right now, if something happens to me and I become incapacitated and there's no estate planning, no revocable trust, nothing, can my wife act for me? What if I'm on life support and she says, I want to pull it. Mike said he doesn't want me on life support. Pull the plug. That's what he said. Please do. And my parent says, who's still alive, no, don't pull the plug. Well, there's nothing that says my wife has authority to do so over my parent, and it goes to court, and they argue over it. Well, if I had a living will, a trust package, and said my wife can make the decision, or my parent can make the decision, whoever it is, they make the decision. More importantly, I'm incapacitated but need nursing care. The trust allows the person to make the decision of where I go without court intervention, and they can manage the assets to pay for it and all the decisions that need to be made without court intervention. So that's where a trust, and I disclaim this with, you don't need to talk to an attorney to get the specifics and and talk to them how to do a living trust. Very, very important, especially with children. If my wife and I die, who's going to take care of the children? Well, there's lots of relatives. There plenty mm-hmm. of kid, people are going to be able to take care of it. But you don't want them fighting over it. So you want to indicate who it should be first, who it should be second if they can't or don't want to, et cetera, et cetera. So that's the care side of living trust. That's so very important for families. Then there's the money side, which is important also, but not nearly as important, especially for young families. So true. Very, very true. You got it all covered. That's beautiful. What is next for you? Well, I, uh, I would say I would like to do a deeper dive on this book. Mm-hmm. So if I get rea- good reaction over time, uh, it's very general, the book is. It gets people started. I would like to take each chapter and expand a little bit on it and get a little more specifics and maybe do a second book. This will be called Deeper Dive. <laughs> That's wonderful. As we close this hour, since our show is about people, family, and living life, would you like to share a recipe for living with our listeners this morning? I want to say two things. I want to say don't let roadblocks stop you from doing what you want or need to do because that is our biggest hurdle in life. When I started to train for the Ironman, I said, I can't swim 2.4 miles. That's not, I, don't know, I can't swim 100 yards without picking my head out of the water. <laughs> Took lessons over time. After a year and a half, guess what? I wasn't the fastest in the water, but I could swim the two and a, 2.4 miles. So I little at a time, learned a little bit. So don't let roadblocks get in your way. Just concentrate on your goal and figure out what path to get there. The other item is don't let what you've done so far legislate what you're going to do in the future. Reevaluate, <laughs> change. Understand that you're capable of all sorts of things and keep your mind open. Beautiful. Mike, thank you for the great recipes for living and for spending this hour with me on From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio. To all our listeners, please join me next Tuesday morning, February 9th, in celebrating Black History Month. My guest will be Alan Maxwell. He is the USA Today and Wall Street Journal bestselling author of The System is Unforgiving, Play by the Rules and Win. Alan and I will be having a conversation about his remarkable life's journey, his passion for mentoring students to succeed in life regardless of the challenges they face. For additional information about this show and future shows, please go to FromMyMama'sKitchenTalkRadio.com. Thank you for listening and have a blessed week. Mike, it has been a true pleasure. Thank you again and have a blessed week. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Bye-bye.